It's uh, great to be here with all of you. If you have your Bibles, grab them and open up with me to the Gospel on chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to have ushers very soon coming up and down the aisles. They will get a Bible to you. If you're using one of our Bibles today, you'll find the Gospel of John on page 886. It'll be towards the, the back of your Bible, a little bit towards the back. Uh, my name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you are joining us for the first time, or, or maybe you've been checking out Shelter Cove for a little bit of time, welcome. We are so glad to have you here with us. We love that you are a part of our services this morning. Uh, I don't know of, of in the, the course of human history that has, that has disrupted the status quo, quite like Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know anybody else that challenged the status quo like Jesus. And here's what I mean. On Wednesday of Jesus's last week of life, he goes up against some of the most powerful, influential, intelligent men on the planet. These men were very threatened by Jesus, very, very hostile towards him because they felt their power and their influence leaving them and going to this blue-collar carpenter from this podunk town called Nazareth. So in public, they're trying to trick Jesus to trap him in his words and find grounds to charge him and accuse him so that they could stop this influence, they could stop this movement called the way. The Herodians are the first ones that step up to the plate. They challenge Jesus and they ask him a very tricky question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is a tricky question because if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then he looks like a Roman sympathizer. If Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then it looks like he's trying to undermine and rebel against the Roman Empire. So no matter how he answers, he loses. But Jesus is like Yoda. He's like a Jedi master. And he steps up to the plate and he says to him, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Dude, you ever been busted by your parents? You know that feeling you get in your stomach where you're like, oh, snap, I am caught. Jesus then says to them, whose face is on the coin? Caesar? Well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And the text says they marveled at him. Not like, wow, what an incredible teacher, like they were stupefied. They were dumbfounded. They had no idea what to say. Then the poor Sadducees step up to the plate. These guys didn't have a chance. They didn't have a prayer. They're trying to convince Jesus that the resurrection doesn't happen. This is madness because Jesus just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Jesus quotes to them from Moses. He says, isn't in the law of Moses, doesn't God call himself the God of Abraham? and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So what does that say about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're alive, you dummies. He didn't say dummies. I added that part in. Um, then the Pharisees come. The Pharisees come, and they have a lawyer, a man specialized in the law, and they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Now, this question's tricky for two reasons. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament. 613 commandments that people argued about constantly in regards to what was the greatest commandment. 
So no matter what Jesus says, this lawyer thinks he's going to be able to say, no, something else. But on an even deeper level, he's hoping Jesus is going to incriminate himself and say, the best commandment, the greatest commandment is that you leave the law of Moses and come follow me. Stop the sacrifices, stop all the rituals, stop the ceremonies and follow me. Then they would have grounds to charge him. But you see, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. So he says to the lawyer, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that lawyer has what alcoholics and drug addicts will call a moment of clarity. And he says, you're right. You're right. That's the greatest commandment. And church, that's what I want to drill into today. I want to spend our time on the greatest commandment. And I, I don't want to talk about the greatest commandment. I want to try to get our hearts really to live that, really to love him. You see, one of the hardest things about this particular season is there's, there's so much busyness, there's so many little trinkets and so many things out there that infatuate our hearts and take them away from Jesus. What I want to do is try to reorient our souls back towards him to love him. I want to spend time to fall in love with Jesus, to just kind of pump the brakes a little bit and see how wonderful he is. Gaze upon his glory. Gaze upon how wonderful and spectacular he is. And the way we're going to do that is by talking about something that we say around Christmas all the time. We, we throw this word around called Emmanuel. And in Hebrew, that means God with us. One of the most spectacular truths in the Bible, that God is with us. What I want to do today is talk about four truths that we can pull out of Emmanuel, of God being with us. And my hope is that as we look upon those truths, it would stir love and affection in our hearts for Jesus. Here's where we'll blow it. If we leave out of here today with nothing but intellectual head knowledge, puffed up, proud, inflated because of our head knowledge, we will have missed it. But if we can leave here today captivated in our minds, worshipful in our hearts, love and affection stirred in our soul for Jesus because of what he's done and who he is, then today will have been a success. In your notes, here's how we articulate the goal. Every Christian can love Jesus more this Christmas season by learning these four truths about God being with us. That's what we want to do. I don't want to modify behavior. I don't want to try to guilt trip you into morality. I want to just gaze upon Jesus and see fully how wonderful he is. With all that being said, would you stand with me as we read now John chapter 1. We'll pick it up verse 1 through 5, and then we'll drop down to verse 14. Verse 14 is basically the Christmas story in like nine words. Verse 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Drop down to 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is a spectacular verse. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Jesus, please help us now to look fully upon your wonderful face, God, to see you more clearly and to enjoy you, to love you, to delight in you more, God. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, and I pray now that you would help me. Spirit, please help me to teach this faithfully, to teach this well. And I pray these things in your glorious name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. The 18th century uh, pastor and theologian, John Wesley, when he was on his deathbed, as his body was failing, as his organs were giving out, as his lungs were gasping for breath, his whole family was gathered around and he was trying to say something to them. He kept trying to utter this phrase to them, utter this phrase to them, and they couldn't understand what he was saying. His daughter recorded in a memoir what this whole experience was like. And after her dad takes a long break, kind of a frightening pause, they thought this is going to be the end. His body's finally giving out. With the little bit of strength that he had left, with as much breath as his ailing lungs would allow him to take in, he uttered this very simple, quiet phrase. The best of all is that God is with us. This is a man that swam in some of the deepest theological waters possible. This is a man that made his whole life about the study and the proclamation of God's word. And when he's dying on his deathbed, what resonated most in his heart was God is with us. He's Emmanuel. As I've been getting ready for this weekend, this truth that God is with us has just been stirring my heart to love him more. And as I said earlier, that's our goal for today. I just want to look upon Jesus and love him and enjoy him and delight in him more. The first truth that I want to jump into today says this in your notes. Because Jesus is with us, he's Emmanuel, it means he perfectly saves us. He perfectly saves us. Now, I want to show you how the Gospel of John starts this. It's kind of fascinating. It's kind of interesting. Did you notice how much the beginning of the Gospel of John sounds like the beginning of Genesis? It's a super big throwback to the beginning of Genesis. It starts by saying, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Now, that's an entire sermon in and of itself. I wish I could explain to you all the layers of logos. That's the Greek word for word. John is calling Jesus the logos, the word. He's the communication from God to man. He's the bridge between us and God. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what John is saying is that the God that we read about in Genesis, when Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, let there be light. The one that's doing that is Jesus. Jesus is the boots on the ground creator. He's the one that says, let there be light, and woof, there's light. He's the one that speaks and creates everything. Now, this is important. The creative power of God is important, especially when it comes to salvation. Here's what I mean. 
theologians are going to say that the way Jesus creates is very different than how you and I create. The way you and I create is we take pre-existing material, pre-existing stuff, and we piece it together, we organize it how we see fit. Jesus can create like that, but he creates also on a very higher level, much higher level. Theologians will say that Jesus creates ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. So Jesus has the power to take absolutely nothing. There's nothing there. No substance, no material, absolutely nothing. And he just speaks and boom. Space, time, matter, energy, intricacy, design, all comes into existence. That's a level of creation that you and I do not have. It is reserved solely for God. It is reserved only for him. Now here's what John's trying to communicate. If God can create life where there is no life. And if he can do that in the physical sense, we start getting around like John chapter three, John's gonna start saying he can also do that in the spiritual sense. Those that come to Jesus can be made new. They can be born again. Jesus can take their dead, lifeless souls and he can make them alive again. He can take their condemned, broken, unforgiven lives and redeem them, forgive them, make them reconciled back unto God. He can do that. And John's like, just look at his track record. Look at what he's done in the past. He just spoke and trillions of stars came into existence. He just spoke and he commands mighty proud waves where to stop. You ever been swimming in the ocean and get slammed by a wave? Those suckers are powerful. Jesus just speaks and they listen to him. And John's like, man, if he can do that in creation, he can do that in our lives, in our souls. He can make life where there is no life. But we get to verse 14. And 14 says that this mighty creator, the word, the transcendent almighty God of everything, he became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the Christmas story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a real human. He started off as a multicellular fetus in his mother's womb, just like you and I did. He was nurtured, cared for by his mother, just like we were. He grew up, he had diapers, he learned how to walk, like he was just like us. He was fully man. Now I'm gonna share with you a doctrine that Christians hold with a closed fist. This is a hill that we die on. This is something that we do not compromise on, something that we do not let go. Jesus is both fully man and he's fully God. It's a doctrine that we hold to. He has to be both. He's fully man and he's fully God. I'll explain to you why. Man is the one that has rebelled against God. So you may think that you're pretty cool and you probably are, you're pretty awesome. But the scriptures are going to say, and, and I would argue that your track record will prove this, that you're actually a rebel. You've sinned against God, you've rebelled against him. All 10 of the commandments, of the 10 commandments, basic kindergarten level morality, you and I have failed exponentially time and time again. We've rebelled against God, we've seen his good ways, we've seen his pleasing, righteous ways, and we've said, forget that, I'll go do my own thing, I'm smarter than you, God, I know better than you, I know how sex, I know how money, I know how pleasure works better, forget you, I'll do it my way. And the Bible calls that rebellion, calls it sin, which means we're guilty. 
We are guilty of treason. We're guilty of rebellion against our maker. Man is guilty, which means man has to pay the penalty. Man has to be punished. This is why the sacrifice of bulls, goats, sheep, rams, it was never sufficient. That was all just a picture of something greater to come. Jesus becomes a legitimate flesh and blood man because man has to pay the penalty. If he's going to be our substitute, he has to be one of us. And he does. He fully becomes one of us and he pays our penalty. He substitutes himself in our place. Real flesh, real blood is spilled to pay God's righteous demand of the law. But he's not just a man, he's also God, which means the same man that has paid our penalty is also the eternal, all-powerful God that can make life where there is no life. He's the one that's able to credit to those that believe full righteousness, his righteousness. He literally gives it over to us. He clothes us with it. He drapes us with it. He covers us with his righteousness, and it's eternal. That's wonderful news. That means Jesus can give me full righteousness, full eternal holiness, perfect standing, and he's got eternal righteousness left over for you and for you, for you, for you, for you. Barely for you, barely for you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm totally playing. <laughs> for, for seven, eight billion people, he could give it to everybody. He could give it to everybody, and it doesn't even scratch the surface. He's got an eternal amount of righteousness left over. He perfectly saves us. He perfectly covers us. We are fully saved. He's paid our penalty as a man and credits to us his righteousness. He makes life where there is no life. How awesome does that make our God? How wonderful does that make Jesus? How spectacular does that make him? He perfectly saves us. Secondly, in your notes, he perfectly relates to us. He perfectly relates to us. I want to show you a couple of verses out of the book of Hebrews. We're going to throw these up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 2 says this. Therefore, he, being Jesus, therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This text says that in every respect, in every single way possible, Jesus has been tempted like we are tempted. So I know that every single person in here has their weak spot, myself included. All of us have those temptations. We have those sins that we're just prone to. It's a, it's a weak spot that we fall victim to over and over again. Jesus has felt the full spectrum of temptation, the allure, the draw, the false promises that it gives. He's felt that and he's experienced it. We're going to go to another verse here, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, see it again, 
one who in every respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence, let's go with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How many times do we approach the throne of God cautiously with fear and trepidation? The writer of Hebrews goes, no, Jesus gets it. He understands. He felt it. He knows exactly what it's like. Go to the throne of grace with confidence. He understands what you're going through. He can help you. We don't have to hide from Jesus when we're tempted, when we're struggling, when there's conflict. We go to him. As I've, as I've gone through life, one of the most encouraging experiences I've experienced, when I'm going through you know, battling sin, or maybe it's really difficult circumstances, whatever the case may be. I've had conversations with people where they offered no solutions to my problems. They had no solutions to what I was going through. All they were able to offer to me were simple phrases like this. I've been there. I know what you're going through. I remember what that was like. Yeah, I had something similar happen to me. And just that connection of, you get me. You understand what I'm going through. They didn't have the magical silver bullet. They didn't have the potion to fix what I was going through, but they just empathized. They were like, I get it, man. I know what you're going through. In our sin, in our circumstances, Jesus gets us. Like, I know for some of you, the holidays are just a wonderful, beautiful season. You love the lights, and you love the hot chocolate, and the music, and the presents. Um, this season evokes a lot of great memories. Then praise God. Jesus understands what, that, what's that, what that's like. He understands what it's like to have your heart be full, and to be grateful, and to be full of joy. He understands. On the other side of the coin, I know this season's very painful for a lot of you. This, season's, this season brings to mind the loss of loved ones. This season's full of despair. It's full of depression. This season is very dark. And, and to see the, the cheer and the joy of everyone else is almost like an insult. It's like salt in a wound. Look at me. Jesus understands what you're going through. You're like, yeah, whatever, Chad. Like, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say that. No, like, Really? The scriptures say that Jesus is a man well acquainted with sorrow. He's well acquainted with sorrow and grief. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's about to die, he falls on his knees and prays to the father and he says, my soul is distressed unto the point of death. Did you hear those words? Jesus, the creator of everything, the most high, unlimited power, eternal holiness and strength just said, I am at the end of my rope. Like it would be better if I died. I can't keep going. I can't do this anymore. Some of you are there. You live long enough, you will be there. The Savior, the Most High, felt that himself. He didn't read about it in a book. He didn't hear about it secondhand from a friend. He felt that despair himself. How spectacular does that make him? He gets it. He understands. Like when he shows up at Lazarus' funeral, Jesus weeps. 
Not like a masculine man cry, like, I'm good. Dust my eye, I'm good. He weeps. He's devastated. He weeps with his fellow Jews. He cries with them. The God of everything, the most high, he understands. Like when I was growing up, I had this picture of God that he's kind of like this a-emotional, like cold robot in the sky. That there's such a distinction between us, like he just doesn't understand us. Yes, he is transcendent. Yes, he is above us. But yes, he also understands. He relates. For some of you, the Christmas season means you have to spend time with family members. And and to describe your family as dysfunctional would be gentle. That would be a nice way to describe them. Jesus himself was hated by his brothers and rejected by his hometown. The God of everything knows what it's like firsthand to have family dysfunction. He knows what it's like to eat awkward meals staring across the table with people that don't like you. He felt that himself. I mean, on and on and on down the list we could go. Church, he was one of us. He experienced it like we do. He gets it. We can go to him. We can go to him. How awesome does this make our God? How beautiful, how spectacular does this make our God? He perfectly saves us. He perfectly relates to us. And because of these two, the third one follows. Next point in your notes. He perfectly intercedes for us. He perfectly intercedes. I want to show you this verse once again out of Hebrews. Hebrews 7 says this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Remember when I told you earlier that he perfectly saves us? See, that wasn't my own idea. That's out of the Bible. Even the Bible says, listen, he saves to the uttermost. He doesn't just barely save. It's not by the skin of his teeth. It's lavish. It's plentiful. It's over the top. It's to the uttermost. He saves perfectly. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Now watch this. Since he always lives. That's a real interesting verb construction. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always currently living to intercede for us. It's constant. It's perpetual. It doesn't ever stop. Now, what what does it mean to intercede? It means to go before an authority on someone else's behalf. You go before an authority on someone else's behalf. There's this great, uh, great part in the Gospels where Jesus goes up to Peter, and he says to Peter, hey, Peter, Peter, come here. Uh, Peter, so Satan has been asking me to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Now, sift you like wheat is a Bible way of saying destroy you. He wants to rip you apart is what he's trying to say. And I can just picture Peter being like, why didn't you say no? Why didn't you just tell him no? Like, thank you for praying for me, but you are the God of everything. Couldn't you have just said, no, don't do that. Peter's my boy, back off. Jesus is trying to communicate to Peter, when I pray, big things happen. When I pray, it's not like how you guys pray. When I pray, big things take place. My prayers are strong enough to back off the assaults of the enemy. 
First John chapter two says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is like lawyer, our defender. Now I could spend a ton of time trying to unpack this and trying to explain this, but there's a clip from a movie that I think so beautifully demonstrates this. It's from C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, The Chronicles of Narnia. And let me set up the scene that we're gonna watch here in just a little bit. Aslan, who's this big lion, he's representative of Jesus, has made a deal with the white witch. The white witch is representative of the devil, of Satan. He makes a deal with the white witch. He'll give up his life so that Edmund doesn't have to die. Edmund betrayed Aslan, and, and he deserves to die, and Aslan's going to sacrifice himself so that Edmund doesn't have to die. And the white witch gets a little bit snarky, gets a little bit aggressive towards Aslan, and I want you to see what he does. Check this clip out. She has renounced her claim on the son of Adam's blood. How do I know your promise will be kept? I don't speak lion, but I'm pretty sure Aslan just said, sit down and keep your mouth shut. That's, that's the picture that comes to my mind when I hear about Jesus interceding for us. When, when the accusations and the condemnation from Satan are lobbied our way, the lion of the tribe of Judah steps up and intercedes for us. He goes to our defense. When, when Jesus talks to Satan, that's kind of what it looks like. The lion of the tribe of Judah roars, sit down, keep your mouth shut. You have no power here. You have no authority here. That man, that woman is mine. I saved that man or that woman. I became a human. My blood was shed to pay for that man, for that woman. I create life where there is no life. I have transferred my full righteousness to this man, to that woman. You have no claim on their life. <laughs> How spectacular. How wonderful, how beautiful. What confidence, what strength can we gain from that? You don't have a passive, weak, frail little Jesus trying to defend you. The Almighty, the Word that became flesh, intercedes for you. Spectacular. Last point in your notes. Because God is with us, it means he perfectly remains with us. He perfectly remains with us. Now, when I was a kid and I would hear these Christmas time Emmanuel messages, what I would oftentimes think in my head, because I'm, I'm a little bit sarcastic, I would always want to raise my hand and go, uh, Pastor, excuse me. Hey, hey, hey. So the Bible says Jesus is in heaven. I'm here on earth. I'm no geography expert, but I'm pretty sure those two are far apart. How are you going to stand up there for 30 minutes and say that God is with us? And if you're thinking that, well, you're in good company. And you're asking a question that I'm prepared to answer. I love when you ask those questions. 
Let me show you how this works. Let me show you why even though Jesus is in heaven, we still say God is with us. John 14, we're going to throw this verse on the screen here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. What do you notice about that word helper? It's capitalized. John's using that as a pronoun. I will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit. What do you notice about spirit? Capitalized. It's a pronoun, the spirit of truth. This helper that Jesus is talking about is the Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity. This spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Then Jesus says these awesome words. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is about to die. He's about to go to the cross and he's telling his disciples, I got to go. I'm getting out of here. I've got to die on the cross. I'm going to be up in heaven for a while. It's better for me to go because if I leave, the spirit, the helper will come to you. Now, the spirit of God is not some junior varsity, minor league placeholder for Jesus. The spirit of God is God in his fullness, third person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, God Almighty dwelling in us and with us. In the same way that God used to dwell in the temple, he now makes us his temple. God temples with us. He's living in and with us. He was the power behind all of Jesus' miracles. The Spirit was the power that resurrected Christ from the dead. That power lives in you and I now. Jesus says it's better if I go. This helper will do things in and through you that even I wasn't able to accomplish. The Spirit is what empowers us to lovingly submit and follow Jesus. The Spirit is what enables us to patiently wait for that fateful day when Jesus descends on the clouds with glory. The heavens open, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And I know that we're 35 minutes closer to that taking place. The Spirit's what enables us to do that. God is still with us. He's not abandoned us. Jesus promised, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to orphan you. I will be with you. My Spirit will be with you, and there's coming a day where we're going to be face to face. I'll see you. We'll be in perfect relationship together. Here's what I know. Some of you have been abandoned by people you thought you could trust people you love, people you gave your heart over to, and they abused that. I'm sorry that that has happened to you. It's a horrible thing to go through. Jesus is never going to do that. Jesus calls himself steadfast. He loves with a steadfast kind of love. That word steadfast means I'm not going anywhere. You're stuck with me. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He'll remain with us forever. I hope that in looking at these four truths, your, your heart and your mind would be captivated by Jesus, stirred to love him more. And for some of you, that, that may be just what you needed today. That may be enough. For others of you in here, 
God bless you. The world needs you. You are type A. And you're sitting there and your hand's starting to shake. Because you're like, what do we do with this? We got to do something. We got to accomplish something. Let's put it on the checklist and scratch it off. I want to do something. In your notes, there's one final point. It's not a fill in the blank. It just says this. It says, we go to people because Jesus came to us. This is the profound truth of Emmanuel. He came after us. That should compel us. That should stir our hearts to want to go after others. How do we do that? Well, as Jeremy and Anthony said, when you came in here, in your bulletin, you got two invite cards. And what we're asking of you is in your notes, you would write down the names of two people, maybe families, maybe individuals, that you want to invite to the Christmas experiences. I've been inviting a group, I mean, just a gang of people. This Snow Hill thing, even the most hardened unbelievers are like, word, you're going to have snow in Modesto? Bro, I'm going to be there. We've been trying to tee you up, set you up to just knock it out of the park, to make an easy invite that those who don't know Jesus could come, have a great time, and hear the gospel. It might just change their eternity. Who are you going to go to? Jesus came after us, so we go after others. Who are you going to go to? Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good and worthy our Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you so much for your salvation, for being one of us. You paid our penalty. You create life where there's no life. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you understand what it's like to be us. Thank you that you're our defender. You intercede for us. And you are a mighty, wonderful God. And thank you so much, Spirit, that you are with us now. We are your temple. We, we tabernacle with you now because you indwell us. You are our strength. You are our power. God is still with us. He hasn't left us, and he never will. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for that, Jesus. As we leave here, God, the, the pace of life will, will come back at us. Christmas season is so fast and so busy. So many things out there to pull our affection away from you. Continue, Spirit, by your power, remind us, reorient our hearts back to love Jesus. We love you. I pray these things in your beautiful name. And all God's people said.